Welcome to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Hello, and thank you for joining us for ASHP's Therapeutic Thursdays podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Daniel Gerald, and I will be your host today for the ASHB Therapeutic Thursdays podcast. This podcast is Envenomations of the Southwest, an Arizona Perspective, part two. In this part, we will be focusing on scorpion envenomations. If you haven't listened to part one of this podcast series, it was discussing rattlesnake envenomations. We still have Dr. Steve Dudley and Dan Massey with us for part two of this podcast series. So we're going to jump right in with the first question discussing scorpion envenomations. And I'm going to start with you, Steve. With regards to the poison center, what is the role that they play with scorpion envenomations here in Arizona? Sure. So our role, just like rattlesnake envenomations, is to provide both phone-based console service as well as bedside assistance with envenomations. The biggest difference here is that scorpion envenomations by large can be managed at home unless they cross a threshold where they become too severe, where they need hospitalization. So either way, we'll be there to help. But in our role with scorpion envenomations, it's mostly home management, helping patients get through those crisis times that seem worse than they really are. And then if they go to the hospital, our role is to help with anti-venom decision and administration, as well as other options to manage uh, this envenomation. Okay, thanks, Steve. And Dan, would you say your role is pretty similar with regards to scorpion animations as it is with rattlesnake animations? Very much so. Same love to identify pictures of scorpions. Again, these can be texted via cell phone or emailed to the poison center itself. They forward it to me. I can tell them if it's a Centroides sculpturatus, which are, is our bark scorpion, or if it's a non-clinically significant scorpion. But we also help with research projects across the country. This includes collecting specimens and or just venom for them to look at the proteomics or the, the makeup, the composition of the venom. And we're currently working with the University of Louisiana about gene expression and what it has to do with venom production. Okay, great. And I know you mentioned one of the specific scorpions here in Arizona. How many different species of scorpions are there in Arizona? And what is the most common scorpion envenomation seen here? So there's dozens of different species in Arizona, and there's many being discovered every year. But there's only one clinically significant scorpion, and that's, as I mentioned, the Centroides sculpturatus, or the bark scorpion. This scorpion lives in about the lower one-half of Arizona. And similar to some of the most common rattlesnake envenomations, this Scorpion lives in Phoenix and Tucson, which happens to be the perfect climate and the perfect elevation, along with individuals doing landscaping and irrigation, which brings in food source, water source, which then brings the animal into their home. So you have more human encounters as well. So the most common envenomation of scorpions, that's kind of a trick question. In my opinion, the most common and then there's the most notable. So the most common is probably a non-bark scorpion. Again, since there's dozens of different species of scorpions, you can be stung by one. You might think it's an ant, a bee, a thorn. The pain lasts for a few minutes and it's gone. 
I've personally been stung by many different species of scorpions. So they're not reported to the poison center. It's nothing they follow up on. The pain comes and goes. So that's probably the most common. But the most notable is going to be the bark scorpion. When this stings you, you know it. It's very painful. The neuropathies you get from it that move up your arm, it's usually on a limb or whatnot, can last for days on end. The sting site itself is very, very sensitive. I've been stung multiple times myself, and trust me, you never forget it. So that's the difference between the most common and the most notable, in my opinion. Is there a way to delineate a bark scorpion from some of the other scorpions in Arizona, or is it really difficult to do that? Oh, man, we could nerd out forever on this one. So Steve and I could nerd out forever. So there is definitely ways to tell. For the layperson, I would say no. The best thing to do is if it's excruciating and pain and it's not going away or you have some signs and symptoms of envenomation, which we'll get into in a little bit, then call the poison center and find out from there. If we have more time or if anybody's interested, they can literally email Steve at the Poison Center and we can send imaging and stuff. But you usually normally need a microscope, a magnifying glass, and several different species to kind of get a feel of how to tell the two apart. Okay. So, unfortunately, probably not going to know what type of scorpion it is unless you're an expert in the field like you guys, or you unfortunately did get stung by the bark scorpion and now you know it. And now you know it. Yeah. So, Steve, how many innovations does the Poison Center see per year? And is there a typical demographic type of person that gets stung by these? Sure. So we see roughly about 1,500 scorpion envenomations a year. And I should realize you say scorpion stings, to be, to be more precise. And as far, as far as demographics go, it's, it's pretty interesting. So when you look at just scorpion stings, average age is about 35, 36 Male-female ratio, it's pretty close, so not, not a huge uh, discrepancy there. When you look at the amount of patients who need antivenom, who go on to have severe adverse effects, the average age is 17, but the median age is four. And what that shows us is that what we already know, it's the young children, the infants and young children, and the elderly who are at the highest risk of having a severe, what we call a grade three or grade four, envenomation from a scorpion uh, state. Okay, great. So the patient population that we tend to see with severe envenomations here looks a little bit different than they do for rattlesnakes. And we'll probably get into a little bit of the reasons as to why that is. So I know we've already talked about the bark scorpion really being the only clinically significant scorpion that can sting us here and possibly elicit envenomation response. Are there any first aid measures that are recommended when someone gets stung by a bark scorpion? And then will all stings have some sort of envenomation profile? So for, for this one, we do actually have recommendations for, for pre-hospital or over-the-counter care. And really, it's, it's comfort care. And like Dan mentioned earlier, the, the pain is something that, that you never forget. And that's probably the most common sign of a scorpion sting. And so with that, we'll recommend, you know, either ice or your favorite OTC analgesic. What we make sure to not recommend, uh, people like to use diphenhydramine, has no effect whatsoever on scorpion sting. So it really is just comfort care, get the pain under control. And if your symptoms are progressing and so you're having roving eye movements or you're having hypersalivation or uncontrolled muscle jerking or changes in visions. Those are all signs that you need to get to the hospital right away. There's nothing over the counter we want you to do to try to fix that. I know you've mentioned 
some of the signs and symptoms you can see with a scorpion envenomation. What would be the criteria for initiating antivenom? I know you mentioned who should go to the hospital. Are all these people presenting to the hospital with the signs and symptoms going to require antivenom? Right. So really, there are four grades of an envenomation when it comes to the scorpion sting. So grade one is localized pain just to the site. You got stung, it hurts there, and that's pretty much it. For that, we'll leave you at home unless, you know, you go into like a crisis mode. But 99% of the times we're leaving those patients at home and we're telling just taking an over-the-counter analgesic. Grade two is you have pain, you have some paresthesias, but now they're moving a little bit away from exactly where that, that sting site was at. And so again, it's uncomfortable, but at this point, nothing is really life-threatening or, or severe from our standpoint that would require anti-venom. When you get to grade three and grade four, that's where things start to really get interesting. So grade three is the involvement of one or the other set of symptoms here. So grade three would be either you have some respiratory involvement and really this manifests as hypersalivation and this drooling, it's excessive. So you can have to the point, especially with, with young patients, they're drooling so much that they're, they're, they can't clear it all. They're blocking their airways. That's a problem. Other cranial nerve involvement could be oxyclonus. And so what you'll see is that they have this Disconjugate roving eye movements. They can't really control them. They're not paired. It's just they're rolling all over the place. And then the other set would be like a neuromuscular dysfunction. And this is really just involuntary muscle jerking. And I'm doing this. You can't see me because it's a podcast, but what you'll have is these uncontrollable leg jerks, arm jerks, etc. And if you have one or the other, that's grade three, that is an indication for anti-venom. Grade four is you have both. And so now you have all the signs and symptoms, you're, you're really in the bad spot, and that's where anti-venom, again, would be recommended. What would you say is the biggest thing that you're trying to prevent when giving anti-venom? Like, what would the progression be that you're really trying to mitigate? Right. And so the biggest thing, again, this really goes, especially for pediatric patients, you're really, you're really trying to prevent an intubation. And so if you have this hypersalivation that, that goes unchecked, you will need to tube these kids. And so we would like to prevent that. And then it's painful. It's exhausting. You, you are, you are spending a, quite a bit of energy dealing with this envenomation. And so if you can bring on that comfort within half an hour, Let's do that because you can treat with supportive care, but anti-venom resolves those symptoms so much so that you can be discharged from the ED, preventing admission to the hospital, preventing intubation. So it's all about making sure we take care of the patients as quickly as possible and saving costs and resources. And if I can add to that, what's really cool about this venom is it's highly specific, meaning a very, very small amount of venom causes these massive systemic issues, but more importantly, it's reversible. And like Steve just mentioned, these patients can be discharged from the hospital. So unlike rattlesnake envenomations that cause tissue damage and you're just trying to stop or decrease the progression of tissue damage, with scorpion envenomations, you can actually reverse it and have no residual signs or symptoms of envenomation. So that's very cool about this. Yeah, that, that is interesting that you can actually you know, have someone show up with one of these envenomations and then an hour later they're 
totally normal. So I know I've seen it in practice and it's, it's quite impressive. So I definitely know the, the value that antivenom brings to these, to these patients. And speaking of the antivenom, what is the currently labeled treatment for scorpion envenomations? Oh yeah, so this is a, this is a hot topic issue. It is, we're we're going to cause some controversy here. So your FDA on-label package insert dosing is three vials at once as a loading dose, followed by one vial Q30 to 60 minutes if symptoms persist, up to a total of five vials. And so that's is how we traditionally treat scorpion stings. Now, there has been some thought and some research looking into, well, can we give one vial at a time? And really that's based off of, can we save money? Because antivenom is not cheap. There is a reality to this. It may not be covered by insurance. You're talking nearly $4,000 a vial. That's hospital costs. So, you know, there, there, is, there is a legitimate need to look at that. There was a paper that was that was put out looking at one vial at a time versus three vials loading dose. And what they found was, well, there was no difference in ED length of stay. The potential problem with that, though, is that in the group that got the traditional three vials at a time, there were zero intubations, zero admissions. And with the group that had one vial at a time, you did have about one in every 11 patients needed to be intubated. And again, if we're talking about saving resources, saving a traumatic experience, that's kind of the whole point. I will say from my personal practice, if someone's having a neuromuscular presentation, so they're having the the leg jerking, but they're not having any respiratory involvement, I think you can absolutely make a, have a shared decision-making and say, hey, Here's where we're at. Here are the options. Do you want to try to go one ball at a time and see what happens? And maybe you get away with one or two. You can save some money. I think that's totally fair. You're not going to die from leg jerking. If you're talking about respiratory involvement and obstructed airways and all that, my personal practice is we're giving three vials up front. There's no time to mess around here. This is serious. So you can go either way as some institutions have done, but your safe, your traditional answer is three vials than one, than one, up to total of five. Yeah, and I, I agree with you there. The, the controversy with the dosing, I think the biggest takeaway is having shared decision-making with all the parties involved. Obviously, we have the grading system to determine who gets therapy, whether you have a grade three or grade four envenomation. But just looking at the grading, you can't really pinpoint, okay, this grade three envenomation, is this a patient with the muscle involvement or is this a patient with a respiratory involvement? So it's also probably hard to study and look back and say, what were these patients experiencing when you decide what treatment regimen that you're, that you're going to give? So the next question I have has to do with therapy. And part of this has to do with, like you said, the cost of the antivenom, which since there's only one here, there really isn't an option, but the brand name is Aniscorp. And since it is so costly, I know some of our rural institutions don't always have it readily available versus because snake envenomations pretty much, you know, if you get bit by a snake, you need to go to the hospital, you're likely to have an envenomation. So pretty much an antivit or CROFAB is readily available pretty much anywhere here in Arizona. But since Anascorp isn't, do you have any recommendations for, let's say, a hospital that just doesn't carry Anascorp or if you're out in a rural community, is there something we can do for these respiratory symptoms or for these you know, neuromuscular type symptoms that we see? Yeah, absolutely. So can you treat a scorpion envenomation without antivenom? The answer is yes. It's not the most efficient, but it absolutely can be done. 
And really the mainstay of that are going to be uh, benzos and opioids for the pain and the excitability. And then when you talk about respiratory involvement, obviously you're saving that as intubation, but we do give uh, glycopyrrolate or ipratropium. Uh, nebulize help dry those secretions up. And that does work. Again, it, it's you're, you're chasing. So there, there's definitely a risk that you're not matching the level of venom that's in the patient that's causing the manifestations, but it is an option. One of the biggest things, though, are, that we run into are hospitals that do have anti-venom, but decide to go the, I call the supportive care routes. If you're going to pick a route, pick one. Not to say that you can never switch sides, but what we commonly see, one of the big pitfalls is that you have this, this young kid who comes in, four-year-old patient, thrashing about very, you know, in obvious distress. And nobody wants to sit around and watch that for half an hour, an hour, et cetera. So you're giving benzos, you're giving opioids to calm the child down. It's not quite working. So you're throwing on more, you're throwing on more, you're throwing on more. And then you say, all right, we're going to get the anti-venom. It's ready now. And then you get the anti-venom, which will reverse the venom. And then this kid is completely snowed, just completely because you, you loaded them up on so much. And then you've taken that stimulus away that you now need to intubate them because they're, they're out of it. So if you're going to pick a strategy, I would say understand the risks and benefits and understand the threshold of, OK, at this point, when am I going to say enough's enough and pull the trigger on anti-venom? And if you do switch from one to the other, just be prepared that that is a possible outcome as well. That's some great points there, because I know that's something that I always discuss when I get a patient from an outside hospital that comes here, where we obviously have the anti-venom, just that discussion, how much did they get prior to coming to us? Were we able to you know, get the patient without you know, any benzos or opioids on board, or are those on board, and should we continue that route, or should we take that risk and give the antivenom, but knowing that now I might have this patient you know, over-sedated or over-benzoed, whatever, whatever the case might be. Yeah, I agree. And to even add on that, you know, I think a lot of clinicians forget how reversible this is. And when you take away that stimulus, like Steve said, you're now snowing a patient. I mean, they realize that antivenom stops the signs and symptoms, but I don't know if they realize it reverses it completely to where now you just have a patient on a large dose of opiates or benzos and you can actually cause respiratory depression. Yeah. So besides the pitfall of maybe having a patient go down one treatment pathway and switch over to the other, are there any other common pitfalls that you guys see when managing these patients that get stung by a scorpion? Sure. I think the the other big one is the differential diagnosis. So going back to the anti-venom, like, like Anna mentioned, works really well. You may need five vials in severe envenomations, but you're going to get there by five vials. When these kids come in, this is more of an issue with, again, pediatric patients. When they come in, they look very similar to what we call a sympathomimetic toxidrome, so like an amphetamine or methamphetamine exposure overdose. They are agitated, they're sweaty, they're thrashing around. Because they're so young, they can't clearly communicate what's going on, but they're just in distress, in obvious distress. And so we have had cases where family comes in and says, oh, yeah, I thought I saw a scorpion, and you know, we're giving them five vials, and nothing is working with that. And then you get the UDS, and the urine drug screen is positive for amphetamines. Like, ah, okay. And again, they present so similarly that it is something that should be on the back of your mind if anti-venom is not working. And I think the other thing too is going back to that, you know, people say, oh, you know, could this be, uh, you know, could it be a seizure because they have these 
this conjugate eye movements they're thrashing about, but the, the sensorium is intact. You know, they, they have that mental status intact. They're just in distress. So those are the two big things, but I think the one that happens more in real life, and not often, but it does happen, is uh, mistaking it for amphetamine toxicity. It's really interesting you say that because pretty much any other part of the country, you see this presentation and, you know, oh yeah, that's amphetamine, you're not even thinking scorpion. Versus here, you describe a case where we have someone who we're treating as a scorpion amphetamine, but then it ends up being amphetamine toxicity, just because of what's more common in our patient populations here. And then you didn't mention the, the fact that these might look like seizures. And I know personally at the bedside for myself, um, it can be really difficult to delineate that. But, but I always tell people, like you said, they, they seem to remain very lucid. So as long as the child is of an age where you can kind of interact with them and get them to you know, maybe talk to you or, or you know, show you that, yeah, the brain's still intact there and they're communicating, then I think you can rule out seizures at that point and then kind of move on to the likely diagnosis that this is a scorpion envenomation. Is there anything else that you guys want the audience to know about scorpion envenomations or anything that you think we haven't covered here? I'll probably throw out there that this has to do with the sting site itself. A lot of people say, well, you could just look at the young child and see if there's a swollen area and you can figure, hey, something stung that child there or poked it. And that's true in, in most rattlesnake envenomations, but it's not true in scorpion envenomations. In fact, usually there's a complete absence of any type of penetration, trauma to the skin at all. The only thing you can go by is a clinical picture. With an adult, it's easy because you have the sting site that's very painful. They could tell you where it was at, but with a small child who's not speaking yet, there's no way of knowing, you know. So I think that's very important for people to remember that there is basically no sign of envenomation that you can find on the, on the child. Also, you know, these envenomations depend on a couple different factors. Some factors are on the scorpion themselves. So meaning what species of scorpion is it? Of course, if it's a bark scorpion, you're going to have a more severe envenomation. Um, how well is the, the telson is the stinging apparatus? Is it damaged at all? So did it actually penetrate the skin? How many times was the individual stung? A small child will roll over on a bark scorpion and could be stung repeatedly three, four times and get a very large dose. Whereas somebody like myself who collects them for research, I get stung, I drop it. It's a one-time deal, you know? And then with the victim or the human end, it's age, like Steve had mentioned. It's weight, probably secondary with age also. And it's other comorbidities that all play a role in what type of envenomation you're seeing. Great for that overview of the sting itself, because I know with kids, it's difficult to know if they did get envenomated because you can't really communicate with them to the same degree as you might be able to an adult, like a rattlesnake envenomation. So yeah, that's, that's good pearls to, to know. Okay, that's all the time we have today. I'd like to thank Steve Dudley and Dan Massey again for joining us today to discuss part two, Scorpion Envenomations of the Southwest, an Arizona perspective, and bringing along their expertise. Join us here at ASHP Official every Thursday, where we will be talking with content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.